So I got a couple extra minutes here. Jeffrey Richardson, cult expert. Uh, this one of the things that I loved about the book was reading about this almost subgenre of collectible cults and 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 modifications to the the cult revolvers. My favorite, which has become a TV trope, is this idea of of a gun and and all of its parts being hidden inside a hollowed out book. So this was, you know, this was, some of them were given as commemorative with the, these little boxes, but there were some that were made to look like a book with, with great titles like, you know, The Art of Self-Defense or The History of Cult, you know, things like that, which you think anyone would kind of realize. How did this come about, and what, do you think this is, a, how amazing do you think this is on a scale of 1 to 10? Some of the earlier revolvers required a lot of different pieces to actually keep the gun functioning properly and actually to fire the gun. Um, this include uh, percussion caps. It included um, cartridges. Um, it included um, other elements, gunpowder. So you wanted to keep all of that stuff in one particular place. You needed all of that to fire the gun. You also oftentimes had additional cylinders because these guns could only fire five or six shots. And then after a result, it became very, very difficult to reload them. So one of the quicker ways to do it, and quicker might not be the right word, um, was you could actually take the entire cylinder off and put a new cylinder in that was already preloaded. It still took a lot of time, you know, in comparison to today. Um, so you have all of these different elements, all of these different parts. So you needed to keep them together. So Colt uh, firearms for many years were often sold cased. And the case included all of those different pieces, a little screwdriver to take the gun um, apart. Um, and all of these things came in a single case. And these cases oftentimes were just as opulent as the firearms inside them. So they were and oak, mahogany, they were lined with, with velvet, and they were beautifully kind of uh, crafted. And some of the more kind of over-the-top ones, which often weren't, um, they weren't uh, advertised, included these ones that were designed to look like books. So these were special one-offs that were oftentimes given to key individuals, um, where again, if you just had it sitting there, you would not know that it was a firearm. Uh, but there are other equally opulent examples. One of the ones I know in the book that we talk about is there was a special set of firearms that was given to E.K. Root, who was Colt's um, superintendent, who ultimately took over the company after Colt's passing. And these actually have mirrors in them. So, you you know, you can place it and you can see the gun. There's a mirrored roof to it when you open it up. So all of these types of examples, again, show that Colt, Samuel Colt, while he was still alive, and the company follows this tradition after his passing, there is equally concerned about every aspect, every accessory that the company is putting out, just as much as they are the guns themselves. But now, the, the book itself, where they have, you know, where it's labeled like a guide to cults or the, the laws of self-defense or something, where did that specific thing come from? Just to, is, was, it, was it to hide it on your bookshelf, or was that really a marketing thing? I think it was more of a marketing thing. Uh, you know, what's interesting about some of these guns, you know, there's not a lot of great stories of kind of how they were used. So again, I, I really think it was more of a marketing design, but again, they didn't, they didn't market this to the general public. So this was a way of kind of really saying to this key government official, this key military official, I'm going to give you this really special cult and it's going to come in this book, which again, you're hoping that that individual will then turn around and promote your guns, either directly through word of mouth or maybe through government contracts. So it all kind of circles back to this idea of marketing and promoting these guns and promoting Samuel Colt as a way to benefit the company. I love that. It's, I mean, it's, it's just the progenitor of, of the Comic-Con exclusive. 
you know, or or the the collectible you can only get in one place, you know, or the the thing that's you know there's only 500 of them made or something like that. Like it's he, he was really doing this 150 years ago, and people were buying it as much then as they are now. It's just unbelievable. And now there's the frenzy with the collectors because you know these are the things that they want. You know that they, they want these things that weren't mass produced. They want these things that were not marketed. And there's all different subgenres of cult collectors when it comes to cases, uh, skeletal arms, arms that are kind of sawed down machined down so you can see the inner workings again never actually sold they were produced for um, as demonstrations for like the army and for other manufacturers um, but again there's all these subgenres of collectors because they want those things that weren't mass produced uh, one of the other things that I loved about this is the engraving you know the, he hired the finest engravers these weren't just like things that were you know, kind of casually engraved. A lot of them were specific to the person who was receiving the gun. Uh, you know, some of them were on specific models. Uh, you know, Gustav Gustav Jung, who be, who became Gustav Jung, was a master engraver, and and some of them even told stories. I mean, one of the ones that's mentioned in the book several times is this idea of a stagecoach holdup, which is it's being the stagecoach is being held up by robbers, but the, it's being defended by passengers using Colt revolvers. I mean, it's it's beautiful marketing. Uh, I mean, it's just I love this. I think the most spectacular firearm that I've ever been able to to kind of see and and to hold and to work with was it was a gun that uh, Jackie Autry, Gene Autry's wife, um, Gene Autry of the Autry Museum. Um, Jackie Autry had a gun made for him for, I believe it was like his 80th birthday. And she went to Tiffany and company. She got an old Colt and they completely redid it. And it's got all of these Western paintings on it. And it's just absolutely fantastic. And again, that firearm, one of a kind uh, made for this particular occasion, that firearm is as beautiful and as important as a piece of art as anything else in the Autry Museum. Wow. And I think that's, you know, kind of the, that was what Colt had originally intended when he was in Engraving these guns and having these guns put with gold inlay and other things on them was, again, yes, it, it's a practical p- tool. It's designed to fire a bullet, you know, uh, but it also is a work of art. And you see those in these. Um, I, I think the interesting uh, convergence between these two is Teddy Roosevelt's single action army because it was a beautiful piece of art. But because it was Teddy Roosevelt, he actually used it. He actually <laughs> fired it. He actually right. went out there and carried it with him. So I always think that's a unique kind of convergence of these two because only Teddy Roosevelt would do that. Any other person would take that gun, they would stick it on a wall and pass it down from generations. Teddy Roosevelt's using it on Tuesday morning because it's Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> right. No, it's amazing. I mean, a lot of these things, in some ways, they're almost like the sneakers of today because lots of people who are really into sneakers want certain collectible ones. They want to modify them and get specific ones to individual people or they're, they're, they make their own. I mean, it's it, there's a lot of overlap here. I mean, I just love seeing all of these, these themes here. Uh, and, the, and the engraving is, is definitely one of those things. You mentioned the grips. We talked about them earlier. I, I just thought one of the things that I thought was amazing was that Tiffany & Company – would make not only did they make grips for guns, but they made lots of of special military commemorative swords and, and other firearms and other military pieces. That was very. I just did not know that that was something that they did for such a long period of time. And some of the grips that they used on these guns were, were just amazing. And I believe you didn't actually remove them or replace the grip. The Tiffany grips went over the existing grips. Correct. Correct. And one of the things that we've learned as historians, because again, a lot of these records were destroyed. A lot of things weren't kept up to date in the 19th century. So when firearm collectors in kind of the middle of the 20th century came upon these opulently engraved, um, these, these grips, and it's 
hard to kind of put them into words. You really have to see them. They're wholly impractical because, you know, the, the way they're embossed, the way they kind of pop out. So, but the idea is they look absolutely amazing. So they just naturally assumed that it must have been Tiffany and company that created these because Tiffany and company had also created these very opulent presentation swords from the 19th century. So that's what it was assumed. But as we started to learn more about that as historians, they all ultimately came to find out that it was a different company they believed that produced the majority of them. Now, again, they had already given them the name Tiffany Grips. So we still call them Tiffany Grips to this day. And there are examples from the 19th century of Tiffany and company that did create firearms. And they had a very way of they would acid engrave them, which was a very interesting way where they would kind of um, use acid to engrave the guns in a different way that other engravers would do them. Uh, but there's a few examples in the book of Tiffany guns actually made by Tiffany and company, not just the grips, but the entire guns. One of them was made for George Strikeman, who was the former CEO and chairman of Colt Industries in the latter parts of the 20th century, a huge firearms collector. And he has these beautiful guns with a nautical theme because he was big into that. Um, and again, you know, you're talking about kind of the, the great examples and some of the greatest examples of these firearms, especially Colts, are those that are associated with Tiffany and company. Yeah, I, I, there's this whole in, – in this subgenre of these very specialized guns, you know, we're talking about the grips. Not only do they have to be opulent and, and, and beautiful to look at, but some of them are very meaningful. And there's this great story that you tell about the Charger Oak. Uh, and, and, and tell this story. This, this, is, this is my favorite story in the book. Sure. So I'm going to get uh, – there's going to be some people that are going to going to get me because I'm going to get my facts a little bit wrong here. But Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story, Jeffrey. <laughs> exactly. Well, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. So right, I'll get right, the legend yeah, part of it. Right, right. So the Charter Oak was an actual tree in Connecticut. And according to legend, um, when the British uh, prior to the revolution tried to take back the, the – um, the colony's charter, an individual stole the charter, American colonists, and hid it in this special tree. And it came to be known as the Charter Oak. And as a result of that, Connecticut is known as the kind of the, the constitution state, because again, the idea that they had this constitution, this charter, before the American one that had all of the what we think of today as the American constitution rules and rights. So they hid it in this particular tree. So this tree became very famous in Connecticut, and ultimately the tree fell down. And when the tree fell down, they chopped it up and they created all of these different types of things from this um, charter oak tree. And some of them were really opulent, like Samuel Colt had an entire um, baby uh, carriage made out of it. And it's just over the top. It's in a museum in Connecticut. But they also had gun grips made from this charter oak, which were very, very specialized. And all of them had kind of an engraving on there and an inscription that said they came from the charter oak. So charter oak things are commonly associated with Colt because Colt got a large part of the tree when it ultimately fell down and made of various types of activities um, related to that. And some of those, you know, subgenre of collecting are those items related to the Charter Oak. And we have in the book, um, not just one particular example of a gun that has grips of Charter Oak, but there was a cane that was given to one of Colt's factory employees, a supervisor that was made from the Charter Oak. And he actually, his hall was called Charter Oak Hall. And we have an invitation to the, um, the dedication of Charter Oak Hall in there as well. So again, it, it the story of Colt, not just as a story of the American West. It's not just the story of the Civil War. There's all these other connections, and this is another great one when, as it relates to the Charter Oak. No, it's absolutely amazing. And, and you know, one of the things that I thought was surprising was this connection to the presidents of the United States. And not just, you know, there were commemorative Colts that were given to several American presidents. 
and, and, you know, modern ones as well. So not just, I think the first one was Andrew Jackson, but there were several other presidents, you know, up to and including, um, you know, I think you talk about, um, I think Kennedy was given a, an amazing pair, then Lyndon Johnson, uh, you know, Nixon, uh, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, they all were given commemorative cults. Does this tradition still continue? And were the people who weren't given commemorative, like I imagine Jimmy Carter probably wouldn't appreciate um, a pair of commemorative cults, but, but is that, does it still continue? And, and who gets them? So, so the modern tradition, like you said, it dates back, or the, the earlier tradition dates back to Andrew Jackson, who believes was believed to have been presented a cult at some point in his life. The modern tradition really kind of dates around Eisenhower, and they kind of go from there of having received them. Um, John F. Kennedy was a big firearms collector, and he received one. Um, but it really seems to have stopped around Ronald Reagan, and I think that's probably political reasons, um, you know, kind of as firearms became more debated in American society. Uh, but you see different examples in the book of different presidents both for the prototypes and some of the finished pieces that weren't presented to them. John Kennedy's finished piece was not presented to him because unfortunately he was assassinated before it was finished. Um, Ronald Reagan's uh, finished piece was not presented to him. And what we believe it was as a result of, again, because he was the assassination attempt on President Reagan, it was decided that it was not in good kind of marketing to then go around and present him with a firearm after that. But there's a great story that I was told from working at the Autry by one of the former curators there, the senior curator, James Nottage. And basically, Autry, uh, Gene Autry, the founder of the museum, and Ronald Reagan had a long history from being in Hollywood together. And Reagan showed up one day. I believe he was no longer president at this particular time. He was out of office. But he shows up one day and he says, I heard, you know, he wants to tour the museum after hours. He does so. And he says, I heard you have my, my Colt firearm here that was never presented to me. I'd love <laughs> to see it. So anticipating that, you know, uh, the curator, James Nottage, has the gun out on the table. He puts on his white gloves. He picks it up and he's, you know, got He's doing everything that you're supposed to with a museum artifact and Reagan just grabs the gun out of his hand and then starts twirling it like he's a movie cowboy again <laughs> and the curators thinking oh my god I hope he doesn't drop it I hope he doesn't drop it but he also recognizes this is President Reagan I'm not going to tell him he's got to put well, the gun down gun. So when Reagan finished doing his twirling and all of that you know he handed it back to him just like when he was in one of the movies and he had taken the gun from a bad guy so you know really really fantastic kind of story but yes yeah, so there's a long history of association with these presentation arms with presidents we get into that a little bit yeah I, I mean it, it is ronald reagan's gun it's amazing that it ended up in that it wasn't presented to reagan and it still ends up in a museum before he gets to see it that's such a strange little twist uh, okay last thing here this is this i found this amazing in the book it's not really so much an accessory but there was a model called the Buntline special and this became associated with wide for some reason what i love about this gun is the barrel is excessively long i think up to 16 inches why I love this is, A, you, they, they wanted you to attach the stock to it. We mentioned before how we work in accessories into this. So you basically turn a handgun into a rifle. But my favorite use of this is in the 1989 Batman movie where the Joker pulls out this incredibly long-barreled revolver out of his pants, which I just thought was hilarious, and he shoots down the Batwing. One of my favorite scenes <laughs> in that movie, and I didn't know this was actually based on a real gun. Um, how did this come to fruition? Like, like, who thought of this gun? So this is, again, when, when this, is the, this is a variation of the single-action army, the really popular Colt revolver, where they were making them in different kinds of different types of barrel lengths 
different size calibers. So the idea behind this, the, the basic idea behind this was the longer a, a bullet is rifling inside the barrel, the longer it's traveling in the barrel, the, the, the more accurate it should be, the, the longer it, that bullet should be able to go. Now, of course, there's a law of diminishing returns that are going to kick in. So you can't just make, keep making something longer and longer and expecting right. it to, <laughs> the results to also right. to grow. So they made a handful of these guns, and there was very few of them actually made. And the story behind it is, you know, the, the, the myth behind it is um, Ned Buntline, who was a dime novel author, had these guns made. He bought them all up, and then he went into the West, and he distributed them to people like Wyatt Earp. Well, there's no historical backing. We can't prove that, although some people certainly still do believe it's true. Um, but the guns themselves, again, because there weren't so many made of them, there's only a handful that still exist. And what's interesting about them is some of the ones that exist to this day have been cut down oh, over wow. the years. And what that meant was someone bought, had this gun in their possession, and they realized it simply wasn't practical. You know, they couldn't use it. It was too unwieldy. You know, that scene you're talking about, you know, he must have had some really comfortable pants on to get that gun in and out <laughs> yeah. of it. So on the frontier, you know, it wasn't practical to have this long a gun. So individuals actually chopped the barrels down to make them more practical. But the Buntline Special is one of the most celebrated variations of the single action army. Um, and in the book, we have what's probably the finest example. Not only does it have its original stock, but it has its original yeah. holster only complete set that we oh, ever wow. have. Um, but that, again, the single action army has so many different variations and, and modifications to it that in and of itself has filled up books on just that one top uh, model alone. Yeah, I mean, just incredible. I love these accessories. I love when people kind of make them their own. And my favorite is just how all these engraving stock, taking all these pieces and making a gun that was individual to you is something that, that people could do and isn't just made up for the movies. That was my favorite part of this. Uh, Jeffrey, this has been absolutely incredible. Thanks for all of this. Thank you again, Daniel. It's, it's been a really, um, it's been a pleasure being on the show a second time. I do greatly appreciate it. And thanks again.